Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits in the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emily. Great job. How's it going this morning? We good? Excited to talk about some false teaching. This will be a fun text to walk through. Just a note, you realize it's cooler in here. We have an AC unit that's in place, so praise the Lord. Oh my gosh, what a ride. What a ride. I almost quit multiple times. So just a little backstory on the kind of clunkiness of it all. So Citizens, obviously, is the main church of this. Uh, they're in sort of a transition period, and we're subleasing from them. Citizens does not own. There's an owner above them. And with the theft and vandalism of the AC units, uh, Citizens has been working on it. And they also realize they've come to the point where it's harder and harder to pay for stuff. So Redemption was stepping in to keep this thing going. Side story, it's also very hard to get an AC unit right now because everything is backlogged and no AC units exist in the universe anymore. So we're like dealing with all this and we say, hey, can you put an AC unit? And most companies said it'll be about six to eight weeks at minimum and then maybe we can get you an AC unit. We found the one guy left in the universe who had an AC unit somewhere in one of his closets, somewhere in one of his warehouses. And Saturday at 5 p.m. he texts me, hey, our company's done. You have a cold room. So praise the Lord for Mike and his company. Uh, he was amazing to deal with. So uh, we've been working hard. There's a, not an elder board in place yet, but there's an oversight team that's been working with me and helping us and make decisions. So just so you know, there's been a lot of people working really hard behind the scenes so that we could have 68 degrees back there on that thermostat. Amazing. I, I want to freeze it out. Go lower, Clayton. Go to like 57. We've earned it. So... Uh, we get to talk through this passage, so I want to set the stage and just remind us. So Colossae is the city, 
ancient city. The gospel gets preached there, a church starts. It's a church of about 40 people or so, so picture like a half of this room or so. And the gospel is preached, and it's, the foundation is laid, and the apostle Paul hears of this church from this guy Epaphras, and he writes a letter and sends it back to this church at Colossae to be read. And this is how it would work in their church. Much like Emily got up here, somebody would get up and read. We have a letter from the apostle Paul. Paul, 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 Paul. Yeah, Paul, Paul. He wrote us a letter, and we're going to read. And they would stand, and they'd read almost the whole letter in one sitting, and they just sit. Oh, wow, what does God have to say? And chapter one is this amazing, like, I thank God for you, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul. I thank God for you, little church at Colossae. You guys have given your lives to Jesus. I praise you. Chapter two, I want maturity for you. I want you to pursue maturity. And then chapter two, verse six, he sort of makes this shift and he starts to get more surgical and specific. And also, I want to warn you, dear brothers and sisters, and this is begin, begins the warning section the Apostle Paul is bringing to this church. Hey, there's some bad stuff out there. There's some issues out there you need to be aware of. Aubrey's, or Aubrey's watching Spider-Man or whatever show Ozzy's watching, one of his 15 billion shows he watches a day, Life of a Fourthborn. Uh, but he turned to Aubrey and he said, there's no bad people in real life, right? And Aubrey's like, you know, we told our first all the bad stuff, and now we're like, we just want to capture this innocence and never let it go. We're like, yes, there are no bad people in real life. It's just on Spidey World. That's the only bad people. Paul would say, there's bad people, and there's bad ideas, and there's bad teachers, and you need to be aware of it as a church who's trying to pursue truth and goodness and beauty. So as I think about what is the f- idea of this message, here's my big idea in a few statements. None are righteous, some are false teachers, but all are susceptible. So just to lay the groundwork, none of us are righteous. Some are false teachers in the church and outside the church. But here's what Paul would tell all of us. All of us are susceptible. All of us are drawn to false teaching. So we're not righteous. There's false teachers we all need to be aware of. And all of us are being drawn right now and have been and will be until glory towards false teaching. That's just how life works. So here's the questions. We're going to do a little different. Normally I try to just kind of walk through the text and go verse, verse. I'm still going to do that, but I'm going to do it through some questions. So here's the questions I want to answer based off what Paul is telling this small church here. Is what is false teaching? What does false teaching feel like, according to what Paul tells these folks? And what does false teaching actually do? Like, what's it accomplish? And then lastly, what is the cure for false teaching? So that's why those four questions. What is it? How does it feel? What does it do? And what is the cure for false teaching? So I want to just stop and pray and ask God to meet us in this moment here. Pray with me. Jesus, this is an interesting passage because it's easy to look through a window at people being deceived, and to spot it clearly. It's incredibly difficult to look in the mirror and spot any sort of deception. And that's what we're asking your spirit to do this morning. In us individually, in our homes, in our church family, to have us stop and take a look in the mirror and actually see where we are being deceived. And at least be aware of how this is going to pop up in our life, in our home, in our church. So God, be with us. I pray that your spirit illumines, shines light, 
convicts, challenges, and makes us more and more in love with Jesus because of this text. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's dive in. I want Paul to set the stage. Here's what we're going to do. Before we get to those four questions, I want Paul to remind us of what Christianity is all about. So look with me at verse 6 and verse 7. Luke Simmons, the great, last week did a great job talking about maturity in Christ. This is sort of a summary statement of what Luke taught last week if you weren't here. But verse 6 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Pause right there. Paul, tell me what Christianity is all about. Is it all about not doing bad stuff and pointing out when everybody else is doing bad? No, this is what it's about. Receiving Christ, being built up, being rooted, being grounded. If I, like, we had to list it all out. Here's basically what Paul says Christianity is all about. If your non-Christian friends and family are like, what are you guys about? What's this church thing? Why do you waste Sunday morning at the stupid church? Because I want to receive Christ. I've received him. I want to walk in Christ. I want to be rooted I want to be built up. I want to be established in the faith. And I want to bound in thanksgiving. I want to live the full life that Jesus offers. That's what Christ is offering us as we pursue maturity in Christ. Like I said, individually in our homes and as a church, that's what we want. Now, Christians are not the only religion believes this, but we believe this wholeheartedly that there is a devil. There is an anti to our Christ. There is somebody against what Christ is And if there is an Antichrist, and if that's the goal of Christianity, what is the goal the Antichrist, Antichrist has for us? Just to set the stage for this false teaching. So here is the devil's agenda. Hey, what's your playbook, devil? What's your job description? Here's what I'm about. I want people to reject Christ. A lot of the parables Jesus tells are about seeds being sown, which are the gospel truth that you sow these seeds, and they get swallowed up by the cares of life or by Satan snatching them before they take root. Satan's number one goal for the people in your life that you're praying for to receive Christ is that they would not receive Christ. How do you combat that? How do you combat the most powerful evil force? You pray to the owner of all the forces that that would not happen. But beyond that, say people receive Christ in this room. We're Christians. We love Jesus. We're walking with Jesus. I've been doing this 18 years now. What's Satan still trying to do in my life and in yours? He's trying to get us to stumble away from Christ. He's trying to uproot our faith. He can't do it fully. Luke said last week, I love this illustration of Christianity is like this balloon. The Holy Spirit gets blown into this, and now we have this fullness of the Holy Spirit. And Satan can never pop that balloon. The Spirit is with us now and forever. But it can diminish, and it can be less full than it can be. And it looks like this. We're uprooting our faith. Our faith is being torn down. Our faith is being displaced, taken from the, the anchor of our faith to other things. And then finally, this is just fascinating, that what does the Antichrist want for us? Also to live ungrateful lives. Because if the goal of Christianity is life of gratitude, this otherworldly gratitude that nobody can make sense of, Satan would want us walking around grumbling, complaining, and then getting on our phones and telling everyone what's wrong with this world and all of our complaints. That is the goal of the Antichrist. Now, this is the goal of Jesus. This is the goal of Satan. How does Satan do his work? What gets us to those things is, the, is what we see in this text here. Is what is Satan's number one move? And it's very simply lies. Satan is the chief of deception. There's this great book I want to just 
Live No Lies, a guy named John Mark Comer. He was a pastor in Portland. Now he's a sort of consultant. He's living my best life. He's making way more money, and he's not a pastor, but he's telling other pastors how to do their job. But he writes great. I mean, that is the life right there. I don't want to be an engineer. I want to make more than an engineer and tell engineers what they're doing wrong. That's what I want to do. So he's wrote this book, killer book, Live No Lies, and it's a very simple thesis. There are things in this world that are after us, and specifically, you can boil it down to three things. Satan, there's really a Satan at work. Flesh, really, my own self is working against things that are good for me. Like we're fleshly people. We don't want the things of the Lord naturally, our natural selves. And then finally, there's a world. There's a system in place on how the world works. And all those work together to form these lies, to develop these lies, to cultivate these lies that we bank on and live on and are not even aware of it. And this is one of my favorite quotes from this book. Here's how he described it. Everything starts with deceptive ideas. Just pause right there. I don't think we believe that. I don't. Everything. So we got a lot of single people wanting to potentially not be single. You're going to make a choice. Am I going to live with this person before we make a covenant before God? That decision starts with an idea that you didn't originate, by the way, that comes from a long line of satanic voices and ideas that are now here, and you're making an idea not on a blank canvas, but in a world that is working against us. Me, as a father, I choose to raise my voice. I try try to use anger with my kids to make decisions. That is me choosing an idea that is not of the Lord. John Mark Comer says, everything. You're making financial decisions. You're making decisions on what your spouse can and can't do. You've got this image of expectation of what they should be, he or she shouldn't be. Everything that's not of the Lord starts with this, a deceptive idea. Or lies we believe. I love how he says this. We put our trust in and we live by about reality. He calls them mental maps that come from the devil. The devil's just dishing out mental maps every day, all day, every day. Not Jesus. These do not lead us to Jesus. And they lead to death, not to life. And then he unpacks and talks about the flesh and the world. But deceptive ideas get as far as they do because they appeal to our disordered desires, our flesh. They make sense. That makes sense. I should get what I want right now. That makes total sense to me right now. Therefore, it must be true. And then the world comes in to complete the three enemies circular loop. Our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society which functions as a sort of echo chamber for the flesh. Add in social media, it's just crazy, the echo chambers we all get to live in now. A self-validating feedback loop where we're all telling each other what we want or what our flesh wants to hear. Thank you, John Mark Comer, for describing perfectly the world we live in. There is a deceiver who is spreading deceptive ideas. And there's a flesh in each of us that is receiving these deceptive ideas. And then we walk out into a world that validates and says, thumbs up. That is exactly how you should view that situation. Why? Because there is a bunch of lies going on in this world. And how does it get spread in the church? Through false teaching. Like that little church at Colossae had 40 people in it. And one guy goes off to be a carpenter. One lady goes off to gather water. And they're standing next to people. And they're like, hey, I heard this this new speaker come in town. And he was great. He was talking about visions, like in detail. He's talking about angels. Like, have you ever been to a church service where they could see angels? 
I've never been about that. And this other guy hears this guy talking about, I went to this new rabbi in town, and he sounds like the real deal, unlike you guys. Like, he talked about, like, strict religion. And these ideas get spread, and now they're in the church. As small as that little church is, how much more are they in this church where all of us has complete access to every deceptive idea that's ever been known to man through one little device that lays right next to my head while I'm sleeping? That's insane. Do we need this app? Absolutely. So that being said, let's just try to walk through and have God illumine for us. So here's the first question based off this. What is false teaching according to this? So what is false teaching? So I got, became a Christian around 18. My dad became a Christian after my parents divorced, and I get into this church, and I love it, and they teach the Bible well. However, they sort of have a shadow side of where everything out there is probably a false teacher. And it was this, like, overwhelming, like, I gotta, there's a slippery slope behind everything, and everything out there is saying bad stuff. It's like, ah, I don't, I think there's a lot of false teachers, and there really is a Satan. But, like, what are the false teachers? Paul gives us a pretty good little picture of false teachers in this day and age, and I think it's still mostly a template for this moment we live in now. So let's look at verse 18 together, verse 16 and verse 18, and let Paul describe the false teaching of this day some 2,000 years ago. Verse 8 says this. Here's the first warning he gives. Like I said, we're going to bounce around a little bit. But false teaching number one, Paul, give it to us. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Check one. Put that in your head and leave it there. Verse 16. Paul, give us some more ideas. Here's another one. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Oh, that sounds a little different than the first. Verse 17, these are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Put that away. Now, round three. Here's the other thing to be on the lookout for. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Pause right there. There's three possible false teachers in that day and age which are still at play here. The first one I would call worldly philosophy. He says this. See, no one takes you captive, verse 8, by philosophy, which is a neutral world. Word, it just means love of wisdom. Do I love wisdom? Yes. You get into trouble, what the Bible says, when you love wisdom. It says this, people love wisdom without ever landing on the truth. You just love to kind of pontificate. Watch out for that. Because what's behind it? He says it's empty deceit, and it's according to human tradition. So these worldly philosophies that make sense to us as humans, just know behind them there's really nothing there other than false teaching. And then verse 16, he gets into what I'll call serious religion that follows strict rules. Let no one pass judgment on you based off what you eat, what you drink, how you celebrate, when you celebrate. Don't let people pass judgment. Why? Because people were starting to pass judgment. Why? Because they weren't doing it the most strict way. So this is where the first one is sort of the Greek influence. This is the Jewish influence pushing into the church like, hey, just so you know, you're not truly a fully committed Christian unless you fill in the blank. And that day it was, you're staying kosher. 
You're getting circumcised on the eighth day just like our Jewish brothers did. You're celebrating the festivals just like this. I was in a church in Texas, and a guy got disciplined out of the church because he, Leviticus 23 is all the festivals of the Old Testament, the Jewish festivals. And he started on this teaching rampage in all these Sunday school classes, like, this is what we still need to be doing. And Paul would say, watch out for that guy. Don't let people pass judgment because you're not celebrating Hanukkah. All right, chill out a little. Verse 18. And here's the other thing he does. Where's it at? Yeah. And let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That means you reject the body. You like push away earthly, fleshly desires to do like heavenly things, spiritual things. And what do you do with that? You start to worship angels. And you've got these detailed visions. And you start to become puffed up without reason by your sensuous mind. That word sensuous means fleshly. So what's Paul saying? Watch out for worldly tradition and philosophy that makes sense. Watch out for religion that seems like the serious option, either by rules that you follow or by seeing what those other guys and girls can't see. Like, I see, I had a vision. I see this. Do you see this? No, I don't see this. Well, you must not be. Paul says, watch out, because they're conquering you, they're dividing you, and they're disqualifying you. Be on the lookout for these false teaching views. Now, just real quick. If I was to start plastering people's faces up here and I said, false teacher, yes or no? Like, how ready are we to like, not that we want to walk out and be that, the Holy Spirit in everyone's life, like false, true, false. But we should have a baseline sense of that's a false teacher. Now, again, I'm not going to put any faces up here. But do we know how to discern false teaching? Just so you know, James says this about my profession. It's not my favorite verse. <laughs> not many of you should be teachers because you will instill a stricter judgment. So I picture like Disneyland. All you guys are on the speedway to get to the front of the line. Like your judgment's going to be like, quick, quick. Jack DeBardo, ah, come on in, Jack. We've been missing you. I want you to see this building over here. And then Josh over here in the long line. It's going to be a wild lot. You're a teacher. We've got a lot to talk about. The Bible gives me that warning, so you all can warn me too, but I have a very serious warning that haunts me. That being said, I teach false things from time to time, either by a slip of the tongue air, like, ah, I shouldn't have said it that way, or I didn't do my homework like I should have, and I landed on the wrong conclusion. There are times when even decent, good, spirit-filled teachers teach false things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about their foundation they stand on is false, and they get up or they post out false teaching. Do we know how to spot that? So here's a checklist I came up with years ago just to kind of help as I was thinking about my kids getting older and counting all these religions and just how do you sort of navigate all these worldviews. Here's my checklist for false teachers. Again, don't bring it up at dinner time with your family. It's not exactly the most easy conversation starter, but here's how I would describe, like, this is the surefire way to know this is false teaching, and they're all S's. Why? So you can memorize it easier, but story. What is the story of the universe this person, this religion, this system is telling? And I don't mean, like, age of earth, how did it all happen? I mean, like, what's the chapter's breakdown of the story of the universe? The Bible has the most beautiful story ever written about God creating out of joy and love perfectly. And then we screwed it up. We call it the fall. 
But God does not turn his back and walk away. He pursues harder. And he goes after the people through the Jewish nation. And he redeems them in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And he's not done yet. His death and resurrection are not the final story. He is now reigning victorious over all things. And one day Jesus is coming back to this earth. And he's going to renew all things. And those who love Jesus in that moment will serve and reign with him forever. That is the story of the universe. Any story that does not line up with that is false teaching. Period. Now, here's what's fascinating. Like, I came from the East Valley, way more Mormons out there. The Mormons, you start to talk and you, you talk about grace and Jesus. But their story is flat out wrong. From the beginning, ask Mormons, research, how do you, how's the world created? It's gonna, from the beginning, it's going to stumble and fall and be like, that's not right. So here's the other thing, sin. How do people describe what is wrong with this world? Do they use the word sin? This is where I get into teachers where I'd be like, ah, they don't talk about sin in the most comprehensive way. I, I don't know if I'd label like heretic, but I'd say, Ugh. like, who is it? Bring me names and I'll give you behind the door, closed doors, thumbs up or thumbs down. I think people also don't listen to sermons as much as they used to, so that's not that big a deal. It's more so like ideas spread mainly through online activity and friendships. Like, what's sin? Progressive Christianity more and more is defining sin in terms of gender and sexuality a certain way that I think is different that the scriptures would give. I'd say that's a problem. Again, no one is righteous. All are susceptible. But that, how you define sin, even I think politically about our country, I always pray, like, shouldn't I go here? And I always hear an absolute yes and amen, go there. Liberal, liberal America, conservative America. What's wrong with the world? Both have the same answer. They are. They are. What's the solution? Vote for me because we can get them out of here. It's like, I think the problem to the world is a lot bigger than that. I have very serious convictions about politics and policy and all that. But the problem of sin is much more big and comprehensive and robust and insidious than the current talking heads make us believe. Third, salvation. What is the solution? So this is where my Muslim friends get it wrong. How are you going to be with God one day? Which, interestingly, Muslims, they don't really think about, like, union with Allah. It's sort of like they're in submission to Allah, and now they're in submission to Allah in eternal paradise. But it's not like the Christian view where I get to be intimately related with Jesus forever. Well, how do you get to your version of paradise? And it's always the same, some version of a scale. There's good, there's bad. The good has to outweigh the bad. What's their solution to sin? Good works. I got to do better, which is a lot of us, which is why we walk around with angst and shame and guilt. Because that's not the solution. For by grace we have been saved. Faith alone. And then finally, who's the savior? The simple way is who's the hero of the story being told by this false teacher? Every cult you follow. I watched this How to Build a Cult in 25 Minutes. It was amazing on Netflix. And you're like, I don't like that my pastor is watching How to Build a Cult. <laughs> you kind of get them in. You paint a problem. You paint yourself as the solution, and more and more you're the solution, and then you start to take from them things that you shouldn't be taking from them. They're the hero of the story. Who's the hero of the Muslim story? It's Allah, but really it's like all of us that really worked hard to get to him. Mormons have it written into their doctrinal code about work really hard. 
to be worthy, to be found worthy. And after all you've done, God's grace will then be sprinkled on top as sort of like seasoning on top of your main entree that you presented. That's not the story of the Bible. Jesus is the hero. Like, you got to be so dense to not see that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear what a bunch of boneheads we are. And then this one guy just keeps rising to the top. It's like, oh, Jesus is the hero. That's how you spot false teachers just in general. Now, here's the thing that makes this hard is we can sort of get the big camps right. Like, what do I think about this cult? What do I think about this worldview? What do I think, you know, we talk, start to talk about Roman Catholics and we got to dissect sort of what do you think about salvation? How do you get to, there's more nuance there. But in our homes tomorrow morning, I don't think the world players of religion are necessarily at play as much as this idea. Satan is after you. And he's going to come as an angel of light, the Bible says. Which means he's camouflaged. And he shows up to get you. It's not like all these scary things watching, you know, NBA playoffs with our kids. It's all TNT, so it's cable. So the shows are way more intense. And Close your eyes, boys. That's way too much. We always think of Satan as like this scary, like, Here's what Satan's going to show up in your life like. Whatever your sort of sexual inclination is, he's going to show up kind of whispering and reaffirming whatever your sexual inclination is, regardless of how it fits with what God says. You do you. The billboard is everywhere in this dang city. Thank you, casino. We get it. I do you do you. You do you. You do you. And Satan's going to say, yeah, I agree. It's a great billboard. You do you. Here's the other, like politically, economically, anything. Whatever your camp is, Satan's not going to show up in the other camp that you hate. Liberals in this room, Satan's not going to show up as a conservative because you would never listen to him. Because you hate conservatives, potentially. And conservatives, vice versa, like, that's not how Satan works. He's going to show up in your conservative camp, kind of just get in there and be like, those guys, huh? Yeah, am I right? Like, you know what you should do? You should start an online forum for all those crazy people over there. You're like, Are you too, too far. I'm sorry. <laughs> Point being, do you know where Jesus is coming after you? I think one helpful way to see where Jesus is coming after is see what this false teaching actually feels like as you unpack it. So that's our second question is what does false teaching feel like? Let's look at these same verses again. Verse 8. Just, I just want to camp out on words that use, Paul uses to describe. Verse 8 says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Pause right there. What does it feel like to hear this teaching? It feels like philosophy, like a love of wisdom. Paul says, but behind it is empty deceit. It's void. It's like a veneer. It's a mirage of truth and wisdom. And then he uses these other words, according to human tradition. This wisdom is going to feel like how the world should feel and function. It's going to make sense to our appetites and our palate for what the world should be like. That's scary. Because we, by default, don't have great sensors in our life for that. That's why Jesus had to come, because we're all messed up and backwards. What else does it feel like? It feels like elemental spirits of the world. That elemental world could mean like the basic building blocks of earth, or it could mean like the 
the angelic, the spiritual realm over sort of local areas. I think both are sort of play. It's like, it feels like how the world should feel based off the spirits of the day. So there is a devil at work in modern day America telling us how it should feel right now. He's like, watch out for stuff that feels like the current modern day. That's not necessarily a good thing. So, uh, Paul, if you had to summarize, what does it feel like to kind of encounter this false teaching? Here's what I wrote. Watch out for wisdom that feels like truth, that's based on how we've always done it, and how life should actually work. You're like, wow, that's a lot of what I listen to. I, me too. But he's saying, watch out. Just because it like, sounds good, be careful. It goes like this. So we, in my car, we just got a brand new 2007 minivan, Honda Odyssey. We traded in our old gas hog, GMC Yukon. The seat was broken. That's not the only reason. That sounds very bougie-like. <laughs> but the driver's seat was set in Aubrey's position, and Aubrey kind of rides like gangster lean way back, all loungy. <laughs> and I like to be like fighter pilot ready to go to war on the roads. And our minivan now has seat one option, seat two option. I want to be like gangster lean like Aubrey. I want to be like Josh. Here's what I take from this. Paul is saying, and the Bible would affirm over and over again, and empirical data upon empirical data would say this. We all walk in this world with a fleshly, natural way to see things. And there's a devil making the world appeal to those natural, fleshly desires. There's a default setting. He's saying, Christians, you need to wake up every morning and reset. God, give me the eyes to see you and to spot error. I need it. It's not saying it's not going to be easy, but Christians have the only person available in the universe to help us, the Holy Spirit, to do that. Watch out for wisdom that feels like earthly wisdom, because that's not necessarily a good thing. Here's the second thing we see it feels like. Go to verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So now we have this pagan worldly philosophy. Now we have this Jewish religion, which is where most of these people probably came from. It feels good. Why does it feel good? Because it feels like we're the strict, real, committed believers, unlike these people. So what does false teaching feel like? It feels like embracing the truest, most pure religion, unlike, and you start to throw bombs at other people. So watch out for that. Just because it sounds true and strong and committed does not make it of the Lord. Third section, verse 18. What else does it feel like? This is where it gets a little specific and maybe hit some of you. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Go down to verse 23. Here's sort of Paul's summary statement over this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So it feels like worldly religion. It feels like strict religion that has good rules. And this one says strict religion that actually sees what others can't see. Worship of angels. Anybody ever seen an angel? I have not going on and on in detail about visions. Have you ever had a detailed vision? Cult leaders do. And I think God gives visions. 
But if you build a religion on the fact that you are the people that can see what others can't see, Paul's like, watch out for that. And that was a lot of our discourse in this country for the last couple of years. Like, I see it. They don't see it. Paul says, watch out, especially in the church. Church, you should know better. Don't be like that. Watch out. So if I had a summary, what does false teaching feel like today that's at play in our hearts, in our homes, on our phones, in our workplaces? It feels true. That stinks. Yeah, that's how Satan works. It feels good. It appeals to my senses. It feels like it fits with how the world should work. Like this makes sense, according to human tradition. It feels more serious than other options of following Jesus, which feels good. It feels to like, we're about this. And it feels more elite and special than other options as well. I see what others don't see. That's what it's going to feel like. Now, we could like slice and dice and say, what is, who is the person we, I think it's unique in each culture and context. I've hinted at a few. But here's the other thing we need to be aware of. What does this false teaching do? It does three things. None of them are good. The first thing it does is it captures. That's what Paul says in verse 8. See that no one takes you captive. Why do we want to avoid false teaching? Because it captures us. Satan is a capturing being. He wants to capture us. Two ways he wants to capture us. Eternal life, he wants to snatch us away from having Jesus as our core. And then abundant life. Those of us who have received Jesus, he wants to capture us and take us away from living the abundant life. Watch out for false teaching because it captures us. Peter says it this way. Here's Peter's warning for us. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Watch out. He's looking to capture you. A few years ago, I was like kind of family pastor over young families at my old church, and I was dealing with all these gnarly counseling situations and I was sitting in a seminary class one time and the professor's wife was there and she's like Josh I have a question I feel like Satan is going after young dads and fathers right now I just have this sense I keep do you get that sense and like every counseling session I tracked in my brain was some young guy making terrible decisions it's like oh just guys are being guys no watch out there's a devil prowling around he's not sitting down like Jesus on the throne, he is prowling, trying to do his best to utilize the last bit of time he has left to capture. Watch out because he is on the move to capture. What else does he do? Verse 16, as we embrace false teaching, here's the other thing. Let no one pass judgment on you with regard to food and all this. The other thing false teaching does is it starts to divide because then you have people passing judgment. Well, they're like this and we're like this. And it creates divisions in the church that the gospel does not allow. The gospel allows one division, those who are in Christ by faith and those who are not. Satan wants even more division within the church. And he wants us passing judgment on one another. Like, where is that going to happen in this church? Where is that happening in this church? Like, I don't want hands raised. I don't want to fight to break out right now. Like, you know, it's really... Just here's one of the things that I'm cautiously praying for as a church. I love that we have a lot of young families. Jack and Trisha are doing a great job with young marrieds. It's amazing. It's like life and vibrancy. We've got all these babies bouncing around in the back. I love it. However, with young families comes like a desire to parent good. And we're all starting to pick our parenting lanes in our marriage lanes. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. 
And here's, what, here's your two options. Your way succeeds or your way fails. And here's what we all want. We want it to succeed. And I think that would be the worst thing in the world for this church, to have a bunch of young families who picked a lane and it all went great. Because then we're all puffed up. You know what this world needs? More people that like me who nursed like me, who reared like me, who disciplined their kids like me, who homeschooled like me, who public schooled like me, who did it like me. That's what, no. Paul says, watch out for teaching that is causing judgment and division. That is not of the Lord. And then finally, here's the third thing, is it distracts. That's just my summary statement. Like, here's the goal of the Christian life, to constantly be looking up to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what Paul's describing is all these worldly teachings that then turn our eyes this way to hear the teacher and then to look down on others. And our life is no longer gazing upon Jesus. It's gazing down with haughty eyes at our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Why? Because false deceptive ideas have crept in to the church. And we don't want that. So what's the cure for false teaching? Very simply, I used to be a youth pastor. You ask a question. They always give one answer, and they're right 95% of the time. What is the answer? What is the cure to false teaching? Everyone say it with me. Well done. You guys would have been great youth kids. (laughs) Specifically, how does Paul unpack the notion of Jesus? What does he want us to camp out on about Jesus? He doesn't give us any like, here's how you go after those false teachers. He doesn't. The only verbs in here are watch out, watch out, watch out. And then he talks a lot about Jesus. And specifically, he talks about this one thing, this idea of us being in him, us being with him, this union, this relational unity we have in Jesus that is unique to Christianity. I just want to walk through all the verses where Paul uses this term, in him or with him, and then we're going to pray and have communion together. What has Christ done for us? Here's what Paul wants us to remember. As you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Not alongside him, not behind him sheepishly, but in him. You're walking in him. You're with him. You're united. Like the only other time the Bible talks about language being in someone is sexual union between people. He went into her. And we are in Christ, which means it's the most intimate relationship possible. We are in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Keep going, Paul, verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not only do we get to be in him, in him is the fullness of God. So if we're in him, we get the fullness of God simply by faith. That is amazing. My Muslim friends are hoping for something that great, and they are falling flat. They don't have that. We have that. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Why am I filled? Because I'm in him. That's it. Verse 11, in him also, now he gets into more graphically, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In him, God did some surgical work on you. Next, ver- next slide. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, same, le- same sort of idea as circumcision. There's been a party that's been put to death, dunked underwater. Don't worry about that anymore. You're in him. Verse 12, in which you were also raised with him. You're not only dead in him, you're raised with him. You're resurrected with him. Verse 13, and now you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Keep going, Paul. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's talking about the satanic realm, the spreaders of the deceitful ideas. They've been triumphed over. Jesus is stepping on their neck, and we're in Jesus, so we are stepping on their neck. They have no control over us. 
Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the day, why is if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? That's how Paul wraps it. Why? You're with Christ. Why do this other stuff that these false teachers are bringing in? You are with Christ. Your death is in Christ and your resurrection is in Christ. Period. That's the gospel. We're going to sing a song, simple gospel. What's the simple gospel? We have been put to death with Jesus. Our old selves, just like Jesus' body was placed in the grave, have been placed in a grave. What power does my old self have over me? All he can do is shout out from the grave, hey, hey, but he's in the grave. My old self is dead. Everything about you that you don't like, that's still like residually affecting you, is dead. Has been buried with Jesus. You don't get that truth anywhere else other than a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than that, everything that's scary about this world, Satan, sin, and death, Jesus has stomped on, triumphed over, and we've been raised with him, and we are in him victoriously in his resurrection. That is the gospel truth, and it is crazy hard to believe. And these false teachers are going to be like, ah, is that really what? And we're all in the same boat. We are all in a world full of deceptive ideas. What we need is this, the Jesus Christ gospel of death and resurrection. And that's what we get to celebrate every Sunday. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for just reminders of how to navigate a world that is broken. And God, we confess we're all unrighteous. And God, we equally confess that those of us who love you have the spirit. So we don't walk clumsily or full of shame or full of guilt, but we walk confidently in your gospel and towards your gospel. So help us do that again in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.